Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. Filling in for John O'Brien, I'm Kendra Hanna. In this episode, Stanley James's new book profiles 14 Black women dedicated to human rights. In Practical Audacity, Black Women in International Human Rights, James outlines how Black women's contributions to the field have often gone underappreciated. Her book tracks the way their work critically reshaped human rights as a field of study and area of activism, their varied strategies, and their shared goals for the future. Stanley James is a social scientist and professor emerita at Arizona State University and University of Wisconsin-Madison. She works in African, African-American, and women's studies. She served for four years as the vice provost for inclusion and community engagement at ASU. James is joined in conversation by Loretta Ross and Barbara Phillips. Loretta Ross is a professor at Smith College where she teaches on human rights and white supremacy. From 2005 to 2012, Ross was national coordinator of the sister song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. Barbara Phillips is a former associate professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. She worked at the Ford Foundation as a program officer and was responsible for grants related to women's rights in the Peace and Social Justice Program. Reagan Jackson is a writer, activist, and co-host of the Deep End Friends podcast. Her latest book is Still Here, a South End mixtape from an unexpected journalist. Jackson is also the daughter of Stanley James and facilitates this conversation. Seattle Public Library presented this talk on February 10th, 2022. Hello, everyone. Good evening. So uh, first, I want to say congratulations, Mom. You did it. Thank you. This was a, a, a journey of a lifetime. So I'm, I'm glad that I was able to do it. Um, I do want to take a minute, though, and um, mention that the book cover is by, is a picture of a sculpture called Brick House. Um, it's a 16-foot-tall bronze sculpture that was produced by Simone Lee. The artist is Simone Lee. And some kind of way it got lost. And I I just love this this sculpture and I want to make sure that people know uh, about this wonderful work. I love that. Where, where is it, Stanley? Well, it used to be in New York City. And then I think that she made a, a second one. I think we've got it in the chat. She made a second one that is at the University of Pennsylvania now. Um, so, um, but it was in a public art uh, outdoor park in New York City for several years. I think um, I think that's a beautiful segue in that uh, a lot of this book is is visibilizing the the work of Black women. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. Um, I would love it. Would you just kick us off by by reading an excerpt? Sure. I just happen to have one. <laughs> <laughs> This book has explored some of the innovative interventions of capable and visionary Black women who were, were and still are determined to contribute to the improbable task of building a better world. Women, especially Black women and other women of color, have more often than not been omitted from written history, or if they are omitted, their, their stories have been poorly told. For years, for example, the story of Rosenberg's sparking Montgomery bus boycott focused upon the mythology of her so-called tired feet, but omitted the crucial years she spent laboring in the dangerous trenches of anti-racism and anti-sexism work in the Deep South. The work of these women is sophisticated and complicated and therefore does not easily lend itself to categorization. While many have attained law degrees, the way they've chosen to wield those degrees varies from researching, writing, and teaching about international law and law schools around this country, to practicing law in international tribunals and courts as judge and prosecutor. Yet human rights do not reside solely in law schools, nor are they ex- the exclusive property of international lawyers working at the UN in New York or its global ancillary offices. Each woman has focused on particular issues that she has identified as critical from providing support for workers' rights to addressing the impact of HIV AIDS on the lives of 
Black women, their families, and their communities, to expanding reproductive rights into a movement for reproductive justice. One has sought to reclaim progressive vision of women's rights under the auspices of Islam, while at least one has had a profound impact on the anti-apartheid struggles of South Africa, and another was deeply involved in drafting a Palestinian constitution that incorporated a human rights perspective. Some learned to negotiate the inner sanctum of the United Nations in order to contribute to the critical processes of forging global consensus around the development of international norms of non-discrimination. They understood that forging consensus is in turn absolutely crucial to the expansion of the human rights corpus. Beautiful. And it's so much, it's just so jam packed. <laughs> it's hard to know where to begin. Um, well, I guess first, tell us a bit about your process for, for deciding to write this book. What inspired you? You know, this book has been germinating for decades. <laughs> and I was thinking about it and trying to think about when did I first think about it? And you know what, Loretta, I think I thought I first came to thinking about this when you came to Wisconsin. You remember when you came for that week and we were talking about your work. We had breakfast with the full um, <laughs> muffins that you don't like. <laughs> but we, had, we, we were talking about your work and you were mentioning people about that you that you with or that you knew that were, were doing this work in human rights. And I had been doing it um, from a, an academic perspective, but I got really interested in that. And I thought there has to be a way that I can find out what we are doing because um, we need to um, sort of bring life to the conventions and the documents that come out of the human rights movement, the international human rights movement. So actually she was person that kind of got me to thinking about it and, and moved me towards doing it. But then, of course, it took decades to get it done. Well, speak a bit more about the process. Well, um, I am not a person that writes easily. Some people can just sit down and, uh, you know, at a moment's, a moment's notice and write, and that is not me. So my writing was done um, once I finally was able to, you know, um, go out and, and interview people was done in fits and start. And part of that is because I was also um, engaged in, you know, administrative work within the university. So periodically I would have an opportunity to go off and take a leave and then sit down and really, you know, um, focus on this work and write. So I've been, I spent time at the Women's International Studies Center in um, Santa Fe, um, New Mexico. I did about five or six weeks there. I did a semester um, when I had come to ASU, I got leave and I was able to go back to Wisconsin and do that. Um, and then I went to this wonderful place in New Jersey and wrote for uh, another couple of weeks. And I went to, um, uh, I also had an opportunity to go to um, Martha's Vineyard and spend five or six weeks writing. So periodically here and there, um, I would have time to sit down and just concentrate and write, you know, and um, it always took longer to write than what I expected it to take. That, that was the process. Well, I was going to have you read some more excerpts, but instead of that, I, I'm actually, I would love for you to share a bit about why you chose Loretta and Barbara to be included in this. Well, <laughs> you know, I told you about having met Loretta, God, has it been maybe 20 or 30 years ago? We met in the late 1980s, but I think the conversation you're talking about was in the early 1990s. Okay, so it was a long, long time ago. And I had this idea 
But, you know, I wasn't um, finding the money to do it. And um, so I, uh, we had several, um, um, we had several um, um, programs that we did with the Ford Foundation at Wisconsin. And so somebody told me to just write a letter. And so I wrote it and sent it. And then I didn't hear anything for about a year. And then one day I'm sitting in the office and Barbara calls me up and says, Stanley James, this is Barbara Phillips. And I got a proposal here from you and I want to know how much would it cost? You know, write me a, write me a, a proposal with the money in it and let's see about getting this done. And so <laughs> I was like, oh my God. I was like, you know, hyperventilating, you know, because <laughs> it was such a shock. But at any rate, um, so I called up one of my really good uh, uh, girlfriend's colleagues who writes grants all the time um, and said, I, she wants me to write a proposal with the money. How much should I ask for? You know? <laughs> so we, we talked about, I worked on it and I wrote up this proposal and I sent it to her and she took a little bit of money off, not much. And then she said, here, go do it. And uh, so I, that's what happened. And it allowed me <laughs> to go all over the country. I went to Georgia. I went to California. I went to Washington, D.C. I went to New York City. And then I went to The Hague um, in the Netherlands. Um, and then I also um, went to uh, uh, I went to Africa. You know, I just got a chance to go and really sit down with people. I went to Mississippi and got a chance to sit down with people and talk to them in their own venues about what it was that they were, you know, and, and that was interesting too, to see what, what their um, organizations looked like, where they were working or their working environment. And most people were really excited about it. Um, and that's the thing that was interesting was that um, several of them said, you know, nobody asked us about this work, you know, and we haven't had time to think about it because we're so busy and working so hard. So they were grateful to have the opportunity to be able to sit for a minute and just consider what it is they were doing and why they were doing it. And so, you know, it, I felt like it was a service to them for them to have the opportunity to be able to share that work. I think, I think that's really accurate, particularly of black women in, in this type of work and that we, we tend to just do and do and do and don't often, uh, aren't often seen in the work and, and also aren't often um, engaged in this way. So that's one of the things I think is really beautiful about, about this book. Um, and one thing that, that strikes me particularly about the respondents for this book is that everyone has a different way of navigating their work. Um, and particularly like, it seems like everyone also has kind of a unique origin story or a point where maybe they were working on women's rights or maybe they were working on civil rights, but then realized that it was impossible not to, not to use the human rights framework. So I'm wondering if Loretta, and Barbara would share a bit about like what what was the awakening for you into the work of human rights? Um, Barbara, you want to go first, or you want me to? Go ahead, Loretta. <laughs> Thank you. I can't say that there was any one moment. It was like a building crescendo. Because the first time I encountered the phrase human rights in a Black women's book was Tony Cade's book, The Black Woman, mm -hmm. in 1970. But it's one of those things that you read something and you don't have the consciousness at the time to appreciate what you're reading. And so I was quite shocked when I saw that phrase 20 years later when I had read it in 1970, but didn't realize it's import until 1990. <laughs> and I think that's what happens to a lot of us, that we had our foremothers 
calling for us to, to work on human rights. Audre Lorde said it in 1981. I mean, there were so many people who were organizing around the human rights framework. Dr. King, Malcolm, Audrey, you know, even Frederick Douglass said it in 1858. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know the significance of the words, it doesn't quite have that impact. So the moment for me, the moment that I point to was when I was working with Reverend C.T. Vivian at the National Anti-Klan Network that had been renamed the Center for Democratic Renewal. I joined the, his staff in 1990, monitoring and fighting hate groups. And Reverend Vivian surprised the hell out of me one day when he said, Martin, and of course he knew Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King well enough to say, Martin, <laughs> he never meant to build a civil rights movement. He was building a human rights movement. And that got my attention because I was like, everything I ever know about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, civil rights leader, is that it's all one word. <laughs> you know, you don't get to this people, you know. And so he pulled out a copy of Dr. King's last Sunday sermon, March 31st, 1968, where Dr. King had called on us to build a U.S.-based human rights movement to join, as he said, the freedom explosion around the world. And I remember gasping out, everybody told me he had a dream. Nobody told me he had a plan. That we were supposed to be building a U.S.-based human rights movement to hold the United States accountable for the militarism, the poverty, all the things that he identified as the evils that we were supposed to be fighting. And so I think that was my woke moment that I could trace it from 1970 to 1981, but it was 1990 that really was like, oh, I get it now. And I'm just sorry that it took so long, but, you know, consciousness comes when you're ready for it, I guess. I mean, it can take, it might take a lifetime, <laughs> lifetimes to get there, but I definitely want to go to that MLK celebration where we talk about the plan and not the dream. So I feel like you're planting seeds there. Well, what about for you, Barbara? What was your awakening into human rights? Um, I, I grew up in the South, um, my whole life and my, uh, work had always been in um, civil rights and the feminist movement. But when I joined the Ford Foundation as its, as its first black woman program officer for women's rights and gender equity, um, I had a, a steep learning curve to get, I was immersed in the human rights movement. I was in the human rights unit of the Ford Foundation. And I had the great fortune, the first um, uh, seminar that I received in the human rights movement was from Jacqueline Pitangui oh. uh, in Rio de Janeiro, who was and is an amazing um, feminist uh, activist and human rights activist in uh, Brazil, founder of an amazing organization called Sepia. And after I spent some, uh, an amazing, uh, had an amazing conversation with her in her very small office, uh, she introduced me to Sueli Carniero, who was an Afro-Brazilian. And when I asked her why she adopted the human rights framework, she said to me, she said, in the Afro-Brazilian movement, I can't be a woman. Mm -hmm. And in the, what, what, what is it? she said, she couldn't be a woman. And, and then in the. Um, Probably the feminist movement. And yeah, the in the feminist movement, she couldn't, she couldn't be black. black. Mm -hmm. And that is what led her to the um, human rights framework 
and understanding how that was the path for her to move forward. She, she became the founder of an organization called Gelades, and she's still, she and Jacqueline are still very active in Brazil um, around human rights issues and anti-racism. So, so they were my introduction. My, my graduate seminar uh, continued with Linda Burnham here mm. in the US, mm. founder of the uh, Women of Color Resource Center. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I learned from women of color in the US like Linda Burnham and women from the global South. They taught me about human rights. Mm-hmm. What is also important about um, her work is that as I was going around the country and talking to people, various ones mentioned that she had funded their endeavors from the fort, you know, and, and that was, and I, that was the other reason I thought I have to meet this woman because she's having this impact, you know, that most of us wouldn't know anything about, you know, um, and that's actually crucial for the work that they were doing. Yeah, I mean, the money. Can is- I add something to, to this, to just put some more history here? Mm-hmm. Starting in the late 80s and early 1990s, a number of women of color in the U.S. were transforming what was known as the human rights movement, because up until that point, the human rights movement was dominated and defined largely by white-led organizations like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, et cetera, et cetera. And they took an analysis around human rights that left out many of the categories of human rights protections that those of us who were women of color in general and black women in particular needed to emphasize like economic, social and cultural human rights. They only focused for the most part on civil and political rights. So you had developing in the early 1990s, human rights focused organizations developed by women of color like Krishanti Damaraj, Wild for Human Rights, or uh, Derebo Hill, the Mississippi Workers Center for Human Rights, or you know me developing the National Center for Human Rights Education. So there was this groundswell of us, which then led to the formation of the U.S. Human Rights Network with Eugene Dickey and stuff. But there was a move for us, from us to bring human rights home in a way that the large national uh, human rights organizations weren't working on human rights violations in the United States and by the United States in a, in a way that reflected our lived experiences. Because when, when they talked about human rights in the US, it was only through the lens of who was incarcerated, not all the conditions that led up to incarceration and all of that kind of thing. So I just wanna put that historical analysis in there that it was a a framework whose time had come at the hands of specific um, women of color who really had an impact and I'll just add, and that led to Pierre Sané, who was the Secretary General of Amnesty International, coming to visit the Hunger Coalition in Atlanta. And in the parking lot of the Hunger Coalition, after he heard how uh, the Poor People's Campaign was using the human rights framework to increase Georgia's minimum wage, he decided to reorient Amnesty International to fully embrace economic, social, and cultural rights in a way that they had not done heretofore. So it was one of those shifts from the margins to the center that ended up transforming even what the global human rights organizations were doing. And that was because of the work that women of color were doing in this country. So I wanna just add that perspective so that that's not lost. I think that's very important. Um, One of the things as I was working on this, that I also did was to go back and look at, you know, how we actually, how international uh, movement actually began, um, you know, after World War II. And um, I found that uh, Mary McLeod Bethune and um, 
the NAACP and W.E.B. Du Bois gone to the original original um, conference that established the United Nations. Now, when Mary McLeod Bethune tried to go, it's the same story that you were talking about, Barbara. She wanted to take her organization, which was the National Council for Negro Women, that it established, and was told no, she couldn't do it. Um, that they already had the NAACP, which she was active in, and that's all they needed. You know that that, but that if she need rep- representation beyond that, the white women's organizations, which by the way were segregated, were you know going to be able to present what her issues were. But she really got you know um, moved from being focused entirely on women and children and education to an acknowledgement that conference that there was a broader world um, and that we needed to be embedded in and working with developing allies across that world um, to to, um, do what needed to be done about bringing human rights home. But we were very much involved in, Eleanor Roosevelt was the the person that headed up the movement to to draft the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And, you know, uh, we, if we talk about her, we talk about in a congratulatory way. But when you begin to um, look into how that happened, she was not, she was making sure that the declaration was not as strong as it should have been. She was, you know, undermining in a way some of the things that were that they were trying to do with that universal declaration, which was a sort a sort of a prologue to the way that we have operated around the UN and the Universal Declaration and all the conventions that came afterwards, because the American government never ratifies those conventions. Very rarely, if they do ratify it, it's you know thirty years later. Um, and they do it with what they call RUDs, all these, you know, declarations about what, well, we're going to ratify it, but we're not going to do this part or we're not going to accept that part or we're not going to do all of those kinds of things. So, you know, um, I think we have thought of human rights, this government has thought of human rights as something that happens over, but that does not have anything to do with what is happening right here in this country. And so what is, as Loretta has said, what is important about this is that black women have been deeply engaged in trying to figure out how to get this country to accept, to understand, to learn about human rights. As a you know, it's an uphill process. Take is everybody still breathing? I had to breathe on that one because um, <laughs> that's that's a lot. Um, and there, I mean, kind of to to Kimberly Crenshaw's point about intersectionality, like mm-hmm. we had to make a way out of no way to make sure that we were accommodated in in, in the struggle. I'm wondering for for all of you, like what have been the biggest frustrations and and the victories that you the biggest victories that you've experienced in the realm of human rights? Well, um, when I joined the Ford Foundation as its women's rights program officer, the Ford Foundation was the uh, major foundation in this country uh, supporting the women's movement. However, that movement was incredible. The the funding went to uh, almost exclusively white woman-led, white woman-serving organizations. There were only three black woman-led organizations that received grants each of $200,000. There was no white woman's organization that received grants that small. The smallest grant given to a white woman-led organization was $1.5 million. So 
the um, women of color, and, and, and mind you, there were no women of any other kind of color getting money from the women's rights portfolio. So there you see how black women who were working in the field of human rights were doing it with, without the support of the major foundation in this country that was supposed to be the women's movement uh, funder. So that, 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 was, that was extraordinary. So um, the, the challenge I faced at the Ford Foundation was in making this way out of no way, was to bring the foundation around to seeing the leadership of women of color, to seeing the leadership of the women of the global South, because they were shut out just as, just as much that, you know, the, the organizations of the North were the gatekeepers. So we, had, so we had to come to see the leadership of the women in the global South. And, and the extraordinary thing to the Ford Foundation was of course that the women of color in the US operated in this sphere of, you know, what we now call the intersectionality of life, you know? And that's a phrase, uh, recognizing this intersection of race, gender, class, that's something Angela Davis talked about a while ago. Mm -hmm. So um, it took the Ford Foundation quite a long time to realize that that was an important intersection. Uh, when I got to the Ford Foundation, there was an unspoken policy that LGBT Q organizations were not funded. I made the first grant to Australia Lesbian Foundation for Justice, led then by Catherine Acey, who was doing tremendous work around social justice, philanthropy, and human rights. So those, you know, those were, you know, that kind of gives you a picture of the, um, the challenges. Um, I would say the, um, the victories were in making some change in, in that um, while I was there. Uh, Lynn Walker Huntley was my mentor about being in the world of philanthropy. And she told me that the, my guide light, my North Star should be, what do you want to say to yourself when you walk out this door? And I said to myself, I want to give as much money as I can to the right people who have never gotten money out of this foundation. So the victories for me are the organizations that now exist because the Ford Foundation finally came around to providing the support that they deserve. So we now have an African Women's Development Fund, which is the first foundation founded on the continent by three African women, Dr. Hilda Tadria, Dr. Joanna Foster, B.C. Adelaide Faimi. And it is, was when it was founded in 2000, the first African-led foundation on the continent that made grants across the continent. That's, that's you know, that that is thriving and doing tremendous work. And it didn't simply make grants to the women's movement or women's organizations. It politicized the feminist movement and across the continent, it is it 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 developed the African Feminist Forum to make sure that the work wasn't didn't get lost in 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 USAID you know development silly empowerment kind of a notion. Let's let's all be capitalists. Um, uh, another another organization that um, continues to uh, thrive is Australia. Lesbian Foundation for Justice with the grant that it received from the Ford Foundation, I think it was $10 million. They were able to launch a global grant making program of their own to strengthen the global LGBTQ movement. Um, those, that work uh, continues. Um, the Asian American Pacific Islander women with a grant of $11 million. The first grant Asian American Pacific Islander women had ever gotten out of the Ford Foundation. They launched a um, gender justice campaign 
that grew out of a book commissioned by the Ford Foundation, written by Laura Jo Fu, about the social justice issues of those communities. And that work continues. So, you know, I'm just, there was the Southern Rural Black Women's Initiative, a grant of $10 million. No one had asked, no one at the Ford Foundation had asked Black women in the rural South what they wanted. And no one had put money into their hands to figure out what to do to change their lives. And so those women received a planning grant and then they received a $10 million grant to put that in action. So, you know, that work is my legacy. I can't tell you whether um, that kind of grant making is still being done at the Ford Foundation. There've been a lot of changes there, but, but that work that I was able to bring some, some resources to has created organizations that continue to make a difference in, in the women's rights movement globally, the feminist movement globally, um, and here in the U.S. So that's, you know, that's what I look at. The work continues. Beautiful. Beautiful. And what about for you, Loretta? What, what do you feel like you're your biggest successes and, and your biggest frustrations have been? I can say that um, I was on the other side of the aisle from Barbara, so I was appreciating the tremendous changes that you were making at that institutional level because I was working at the grassroots level and uh, Sister Song, for example, my organization in the 1990s received a $4 million grant from the Ford Foundation and we wouldn't have existed without that. And at the time, that was the largest grant given to a women of color organization working on reproductive health issues, for example. So those were some very significant things. But I have to say that, you know, shifting away from funding to actually, you know, talking about <clears throat> what was happening in people's lived experiences, one of the things that we had to do to build a domestic focus on human rights in the United States was recognize that the entire philanthropic community was not prepared for us to do transformative work on human rights in the United States because human rights was something that happened overseas, mm -hmm. not here. And, you know, it's because they were very much leaning into that, you know, white-led human rights organization that focused on, you know, political prisoners in China and not the homeless people you stepped over to mail your letter about the political prisoners in China. And so we had to figure out how to do transformative work without the support of the foundation community. We had to actually have funders briefing to educate our own funding community on the path-breaking work we were doing. And one of the big successes we had was when uh, Dorothy Thomas was commissioned to write a Ford report called Close to Home, which, which featured 13 case studies of the work that we'd been doing over the years around human rights in the United States as a way to bring it to the philanthropic community to say that, Y'all need to recognize that this work is taking place without you. And just imagine how much greater it could be if y'all were actually partnering with us and, and helping us to actually do more and do bigger and better. And so when I think of our successes, I like to think of how, you know, one thing Black women are very good at doing is transforming the world from the margins to the center. Bell wrote a whole book about that. Whether it was uh, the Kambahi River Collective with their framing of, uh, of identity politics or Kimberly Crenshaw with her naming of intersectionality. And of course, a lot of people talked about intersectionality before Kimberly Crenshaw named it. But her naming it was also transformative. The same way Newton naming gravity he didn't invent gravity, but he certainly named it and he changed everything with that naming kind of thing. 
And I, and I like to think that the 12 of us who created reproductive justice as a human rights-based framework has transformed reproductive politics, not only in the US, but globally, underpinning it with a human rights framework. And so I think our most significant accomplishment is how we have transformed power relationships from the margins to the center. It was not a top-down process, but a bottom-up process so that the people with the power had to run to catch up to us <laughs> as opposed mm -hmm. to presume that they had the pathway. Uh, and I remember having this one conversation with a foundation and, and you, there was this one time that foundations were really in love with the concept of what is your theory of change? What is your theory of change? What, what are you going to do in order to produce the change that we think you should do if we give you this little bit of grant for one year? Right. And finally, I got so mad at this at, at this constant request for my theory of change. I just blurted out to him. I can tell you my theory of change. Ain't nothing going to change if you don't fund us. That's my theory of change. OK. <laughs> you know? and, and that was considered, you know, not not polite to t be that blunt with them. But one of the things we had to change in our philanthropic relationship was let we're your partners. You're not our bosses. Your job is to fund us. Our job is to do the work. Your job ain't to tell us what the work to do just because you've got all that bird's eye view and power and stuff. And 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 I'll I'll, I'll close with this one small thing about margins to the center. When Sister Song first got his grant. $4 million grant from the uh, Ford Foundation. There was a rule within Ford Foundation that you couldn't use grant monies to buy what they call capital equipment, like copiers, faxes, machines, uh, anything that they considered equipment. And so when they tried to impose that restriction on us as Sister Song, our founder, Luz Rodriguez, she just said, that's unacceptable. Why should we spend valuable money leasing copiers and fax machines when we could buy them for much less? And so she pushed that. She actually put our $4 million grant on the line when she said, that's unacceptable. You're not going to tell us we can't buy a copier and fax machine. That caused Rena Marcello to do research to find out that it was an urban myth within the Ford Foundation that, oh, that grants had to be restricted in buying copiers and fax machines, particularly when they were given to, to, to people of color, either domestically or internationally. Well, we didn't have that rule in the human rights unit. That's, well, that's because we had changed it by the time you came, Barbara. It was foundation. Well, I, I, I think, you know, just to, the, the biggest challenge was the inability of philanthropy to, to value and trust the judgment of women of color and women of the global South. Right. That's, and I'm, I'll just bet that's still an obstacle. To trust the judgment of the leadership of women of color, black women in particular, and women of the global South, the way in which philanthropy has valued and trusted the judgment of white women. That's it right there. I wanted the other to... thing is that I should say, when people of color get these jobs at foundations, they themselves are marginalized and not trusted. Well, and some of them forget while they're there. Well, uh, there's that too. <laughs> there's that too. They start some of them just the want to stick around. You know? and, <laughs> and you're not going to stick around if you mm -hmm. make people uncomfortable. Right. My experience, my limited experience with philanthropy at the Ford Foundation was that white people really believe in being comfortable. And That's you know, we lie. now see that in state legislation. They're gonna pass laws so that they can be comfortable. But that was a very much a part of the culture of the Ford Foundation, was that those white people had to be comfortable. And people that made them uncomfortable were not invited into the room. Mm -hmm. 
or they were taken to and the cafeteria <laughs> upstairs and given a good, and a going away dinner and never get funded again. <laughs> I was just going to ask that you talk about that comfort thing because that's one of the things that you talked about. That was it's a monster. Important. Mm-hmm. It's a monster. Uh, I mean, it's so ridiculous that when I was uh, going to the Ford Foundation to be interviewed for this position, Lynn Walker Huntley, bless her heart, she was a vice president at the Ford Foundation and since gone on to the Southern Education Fund, I think. But she she had been for a long time. She she was the vice president for U.S. programs. She was the highest ranking black woman in philanthropy for a good while. And so she coached me on how to talk. I'm a practicing litigating civil rights lawyer, but she, I had to learn how to speak when I went to the Ford Foundation. And so she did a series of phone calls with me where she would say, okay, they're gonna ask you this. And she'd say, what do you have to say? And I'd give her my answer. And it was a good answer, but you know what I got from her? She said, okay, Barbara, that's a good answer. But what I heard you say was, and she would give it back to me in what we call forward speak. Mm, mm -hmm. So if you wanted to do something in the Ford Foundation, you better walk in there knowing how to do forward speak. That's about comfort. So that my ideas couldn't have even been heard if I didn't speak them in the language of the foundation. I'm talking about that level of comfort. Yeah. And I learned to speak it, too. I'll have you know that. (laughs) As much as people debate Robin DiAngelo, she has named white fragility in a way that is transformative for us to look at it. Now, there's a whole lot to problematize about it. But I would you know, I, I would like people to put white fragility down and pick up. Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. I think that's going to get us somewhere. Now, see, I well, let's debate that. We can be <laughs> yes. I, I teach Ibram's book and I teach D'Angelo, and I wish Ibram had, had really more developed his taxonomy because a category of assimilationist that keeps Mitch McConnell and Barack Obama in the same category is a little underdeveloped for me. You know, so but we can talk about that. <laughs> no, and I, you know, I'm going to intercede just because we are um, almost at time. And I don't see any questions from the audience. If there is a, a question, you can maybe pop them in the, in the Q&A box. But, but the final question I wanted to, to pose is to you, Mom. What, what do you hope will be the impact of this book? I want you to, to speak it into existence. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, we are in, we are in, uh, as they used to say, a hell of a mess. Oh, I was trying to turn, make a mel of a hess. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean in the, right now? I mean, the things that we're, the, the, you know, the, the fact that the, the little that we attained you know, in the movements of the mid to later 20th century are uh, in, there's an effort to demolish that, you know, including voting rights, including, you know, um, access to adequate um, reproductive rights, all of those things. You know, we have a vision for those things that are much broader than what actually happened. And the and the and those things that have happened are being consistently and uh, they're being consistently taken away from us. There's a, a movement to do that. What I hope will happen with this book is that um, the the stories of the women who are phenomenal and who have done yeoman work at the you know at the turn of the century. I hope that that will help to um, encourage those people who want to make a difference in the world to take the steps to do that. Because what you see is that you've got these women who have decided, I'm going to do this. 
I'm going to, you know, plant myself right here. And this is what I'm going to work on because, you know, it's, it's terrible. Um, and they did it with little funding. They did it through also um, developing relationships with the people around them and figuring out together um, how they could partner to make a difference in the world. So what I hope this book will do is inspire people to um, think about how they can take a piece of the work that needs to be done and focus on it and do it. It's very clear that one person cannot make the change that is necessary for this world. It will take all of us and all of us will have to do it in the way that we can best contribute. So that's what I hope happens with this book. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I want it out there. I want people to read it. I want them to think about it. I want them to talk to other people about it. And I hope it inspires them to do what they need to do to, you know, get us out of this mel of a hess that we're in. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's a, a beautiful place to conclude. I don't see any questions in the in the Q&A box. I do see lots of gratitude in the chat. So panelists, make sure you check out the, the notes of gratitude in the chat. And I think I'm gonna turn it back over to um, Stesha, but, but thank you all for participating and, and congratulations on your book. And thank you all for the work you have done within the context of <laughs> human rights and in this book. Thank you, good night. Good night. Good night. Stanley James is the author of Practical Audacity, Black Women and International Human Rights. This program was presented on February 10th by the Seattle Public Library. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.